All right, let's jump right in. You got your worksheet. I'm not going to belabor backtracking too much except to say a few things, and then we're going to jump right into tonight. Uh, I've been trying in chapter one and the pre uh, lessons introduction to chapter one to be very methodical to drive home a point. And the point I want to drive home is it's very difficult to move through the book of Revelation and not have an understanding of some clear things. Number one, an understanding of time. And we talked about time and time not just being a linear thing, but an out and back. Jesus is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we saw the seven beginnings and the seven endings. Number two, there has to be a clear understanding of the church. It is very hard to make sense of revelation with a very weak understanding of the church. And we looked at that pretty much in depth last night. Number three, tonight we are going to look at the blood. It is difficult to understand the book of Revelation without an understanding of the blood of Jesus and what this whole dirty, nasty thing of blood has to do with anything and it has very much to do with even understanding what's going on. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Then, this concept called the right hand. All through chapter 1, you will see he holds the stars in his right hand. He touched John with his right hand. The lamb took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. You have to have an understanding of the right hand to really gain a clarity of what is remotely taking place in the book of Revelation. So I've tried to be very methodical with all of them. We're going to pick up the next ones, the blood tonight and the right hand tonight, and try to slide into home plate for chapter 2 next week. So let's just jump right in with this thought, and then we'll get in. This is not on your worksheet, but a recap. What I'm trying to drive home is that there are two families that God's always dealing with. There's God the Father. There's Satan as a father. There's two remedies, the cross or the law. The law brings death. The cross brings life. And then God uh, has delineated in Scripture three nations of people. Jews, those he called out by Abraham unto his own and made him his nation. Gentiles, everybody else. So if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's every other human nation on the planet uh, all the way down that's not a Jew. And then the third nation is the church. And I've been uh, very specific to say that the church is treated very differently than anything else in the Bible. <clears throat> the church is separate from the Jew and the Gentile nations, is dealt with separately as a nation because the church is a holy nation and it's directly connected to the body of Jesus Christ being the body and He being the head. So... I, I'm trying to do this because there's the questions that I always get are this. Will the church have to go through all this hell and wrath and end stuff? Will we go through it? That's really the question. Maybe it's why a lot of people even come. I just can't wait till you get there and tell me why and will I go through it. And so what I'm trying to do is not just show up as a Pentecostal and go, I believe in the rapture. That's what I was taught. So let's all believe it together. I'm trying to build it in a way where you'll understand why I believe that the church will not go through this time and we will be distinctly separate during this time. And I, you know, if you don't believe it, it's okay. It do, that doesn't bother me. And, and I encourage you to believe what you dig out of Scripture, but I'm trying to give you what I dig out of it. So let's just jump right in. That's kind of where we've been. And... Uh, <clears throat> Let me see if I can scroll through these pretty quick. It's being a little slow. Here we go. <clears throat> so let's jump right in with a scripture. And here comes our scripture. Revelation 1.5. We're going to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ and an understanding of the blood. We're in verses 5 and 6, so you see we've got to go all the way to the end tonight. I believe we'll do it. To him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God the Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So we don't even get out of chapter 1 to even start talking about all of these symbols of revelation that we're not having to deal with the blood. 
But the blood links itself up with some pretty clear things. Number one, sin. Number two, it makes us into something, kings and priests. Number three, it does something very uh, back to the book of Genesis. It brings us glory, which is a covering of the Father, and it brings us dominion, the right to rule and reign. So when we're looking at this, I want you to understand that there is the blood is not just something we sing about. And it's not just some abstract thing that's on a cross that we talk about. The blood carries within it a power that changes who we are and brings us into a right and different standing than who we are, into a different relationship to God than anything else on the planet. So when we talk about blood, we're not just talking about my sins have been forgiven and Jesus died. When we mention the word blood, we're talking about that God is turning us into something. And what he's turning me into are kings and priests and what he's doing for me is to give me glory and dominion yeah here's what I want to do and you can write this down because I'm going to talk about them in depth that you can get your brain around I'm going to talk about the two types of blood uh, type may be a bad uh, let's use the word workings the two workings of blood because it will help you understand why even the book of Revelation seems to be divided into two categories Chapters 1 through 3, pretty nice. And when we're dealing with Jesus and the churches, chapter 4, things seemingly start falling apart and the world looks like it's just going to hell in a handbasket with everything that's going on. But if you really look at it from a perspective of blood, you see why the churches are going to be dealt with totally different than the rest of the world. Because the sins of the church have been absolved in the blood of Jesus but the sins of the world that rejected the blood of Jesus will be judged, and therein they'll be judged by blood. So there is a blood that redeems, if you want to write this down, and then there is a blood that judges. They both work to accomplish a work on sin. The blood that redeems forgives me, turns me into something of king and a priest, gives me dominion, offers me eternal life. The blood that judges brings death to me, separates me forever from Christ. I'm not a king and a priest. I'm literally considered what is the dead. I'm labeled with the dead. I don't even get a label on me other than the dead. That's what, as we get into the book of Revelations, we will see what's going on. Here is a fill in the blank if you remember your greens check mark. The blood, there is a blood that has to do with kings, priests, glory and dominion. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 I'd like to read it. You can write this text down and study it later. But 1 Peter chapter 2 I'm going to start reading in verse 4. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people. There's that rejection. But he was chosen by God for great honor, verse 5. And you are living stones. There's that thing that the blood is doing. It's, it's bringing life to me. And you are being built into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priest through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great favor and anyone who trusts him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. He is the stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. And listen to this. They stumble because they do not believe God's word and here's the phrase, if you want to underline it, it's verse number 8, the end of verse number 8. And they meet the fate that was planned for them. So this book of Revelation that is going to play out with the plagues and the trumpets and the judgments and the bowls and the wrath of God, the destruction of the earth, the annihilation of all the animals, it's a fate that's already pre-planned. So the book of Revelation is not God being ticked at us. God is not mad at us. God has forgiven humans in Jesus Christ. 
But what the book of Revelation is, is not God getting even with us because we rejected him, but God being true to his nature, that sin must be judged. And I must pour my wrath out upon sinful behavior. And so this thinking that the book of Revelation is God is mad at humans. God's not mad. You've been forgiven. He holds nothing against you at all. That's the beauty of grace. Every sin that humans could come up with, he's forgiven. But to those who consistently reject his blood, he's obligated, as we said last week, the ethical, the legal, the political side of God is, I still have to deal with sin. And if you don't come to me for the blood that redeems you, then you will automatically get the blood that will judge you. Is that pretty clear on that? 1 Peter chapter 2. Here's this rethink. The blood that has to do with the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross shed for the sins of the world. The shedding of this blood was the judgment of God upon sin's penalty. So we said this several weeks back, but I do want you to ponder this because we're going to dig it out pretty deep. As you go through Revelation and you start seeing the judgments play out, you see some very strange things. You see the oceans turn to blood. The rivers turn to blood. The animals in the ocean all die. The animals in the river all die. All because blood is being poured out. So even though I'm in the book of Revelation, if I'm not careful, I can think, well, we all escape blood, but nobody ever escapes the blood of Jesus. Here's what Colossians 1.20 says. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, watch now, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything. Come on, shout amen to that one. He's not ticked at you. In heaven and on earth, but the way he did that was by his own blood on the cross. Now to understand how it even works, all right, to understand... Um, this thinking, because okay, this would naturally be the question. Well, if he's already made peace with every human and his blood has already reconciled every human, then why are we still having to pay the price? This verse is at the crux of a religion called universalism. Universalism and the church, the universalist, that's a denomination of believers or, you know, we would say non-believers, but they label themselves as the true church, use this as that we've all been forgiven. Everybody gets to go to heaven. You don't even have to repent. Homosexuals go, lesbians go, murderers go, liars go. Everybody gets in. And the reason this is, is because God reconciled us all by the blood. Again, you said, what does this have to do with Revelation? Much in every way. I'll tell you why. But to understand this blood and this issue of the two bloods, let's go back in thought. You can study it on your own to the original sin of Adam. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, remember the story, they fall into sin. When they fall into sin, what does Adam do? The Bible says that he and Eve ran and hid themselves among the trees of the garden because they were ashamed and they were naked. You remember before they were naked, they, it says, and they were naked and felt no shame. But the moment he ate the, the piece of fruit, the Bible says that they both realized they were naked, and the moment they realized their nakedness, shame came. Now, what did shame cause Adam and Eve to do? Hide. So go back in a picture that sin will do two things. It brings shame meaning you're going to have to run and hide from him because God's going to get you, and it brings guilt. You die. So that's the main problem that we have with sin. Now, if that's the main problem, shame, run and hide because you did something wrong and God's going to get you, and you're going to die because there's no escaping the penalty, then the blood of Jesus has to remedy those two issues. Shame and guilt. So, let's parse it out. When you're not born again and you've never met Jesus, 
Shame is on us because we feel like I'm too dirty to come to Jesus. I don't des- he doesn't deserve uh, to love me. I'm too shameful. I, I, you just don't know what I've done. Well, the death of Jesus, no matter what you've done, has already made peace with you. He holds nothing against you. Colossians will also say he took everything opposed to you and nailed it to his cross. So, watch. The death of Jesus eliminated your shame for sin and there's nothing you can do about it. You've already been forgiven. You don't even have to believe it. You're already forgiven. He holds nothing against you. Every sin you've ever made or will make, totally forgiven. You can come to me right now. I hold nothing against you because all of your guilt and shame was placed upon me at the cross. So what the blood does, eliminate shame so that all of us can come. Come for what? We can come and receive the blood and the moment I do, the guilt is eradicated. And I will not suffer the penalty of death. But should I reject the blood of Jesus and say, you know, Jesus is just not for me. Then though I've been forgiven and there's no reason I couldn't come to him because he's not mad at me. But if I never kneel and say, you are Lord, then I will still suffer the penalty of death. And that is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is playing out that the wrath of God is being poured out upon the kingdom of Satan, upon the Jews that have rejected him, the Gentiles that have rejected him, because God will deal with sin's judgment. He can either deal with the guilt by you believing on the cross, or he will deal with the guilt in the book of Revelation. Either way, he's just. He allows you to get rid of the guilt by believing in Jesus or he will bring on the punishment of death either way. And that's why the book of Revelation, to make sense, we need to understand the power of the blood of Jesus. To those of us who've already been forgiven, we will not suffer the wrath of God. We will not go through the wrath of God. We've been delivered from the wrath of God because the punishment for the death of sin was put on Jesus and taken off of me when I believed. That was really good for a little amen. (laughs) You've been ransomed. Listen to what this verse says. And they sang a new song, Revelation 5. Man, when we get into this chapter, it's going to be thick, but for today. You who are worthy, take the scroll and open the seals, for you were slain and you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe. See that thing, you've redeemed me unto God. And there again, you've made me into something. There's this moment that Mark Evans chooses to believe in Jesus Christ. And he says, Mark, I've redeemed you. I brought you to myself. I've called you as part of my family. And this word redeemed is this. It's agorazo, which is in the Greek. And it means to be, we would use the word ransomed. It's the word redeemed. But it has the thought that you're bought. We said this last week that you're bought in the marketplace. It's a marketplace idea. I paid a price for you. I bought you. You now belong to me. I've redeemed you. You're my property. This is the whole thought of what is going on. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Holy Spirit, you're called a temple of the living God. Matter of fact, let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I just want you to see it with your eyes. The thought of what's going on with the blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen to verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? who lives in you and was given to you by God. Uh, This is just a thought. We'll talk about it deeper in the other chapters to come. But this is a thought. You don't even belong to yourself. That's powerful. You don't belong to you. You belong to me. Now my question, just logically, if I don't even belong to myself, and I belong to him, the head, Jesus... 
then tell me where is the head at during the tribulation period? In heaven. I want to show you tonight as we get into it. But he says, you belong to me. You're my temple. Listen to what he said. For God bought you with a high price. Again, what I'm trying to build into us is that the church, those of us who believe, are distinctly dealt with differently than any other group of people in the Bible. Distinctly different. Uh, whether you still believe in pre-trib or not is not my point tonight. The point over the last two weeks is we are different. God sees us different, and the reason we're different is we've been paid for by the blood of Jesus. We believe in the blood of Jesus. We're a distinctly different nation. We're not the Jews. We're not the Gentiles. We're a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. We're set apart by the blood of Jesus. We've been redeemed by Jesus. We're owned by Jesus. We're part of Jesus' body. We're totally separate. We've been brought to himself. We're here spiritual temple. And just that logic alone says to me, I just don't see us going through the thing called the wrath. And even Paul will say that. It's not appointed unto you to suffer the wrath of God. Maybe he knew things I didn't know. Maybe he knows something more than my Pentecostal or my Baptist or my Methodist denomination where we argue pre, mid, and post-trib. Maybe Paul had a real revelation of the understanding that the church is distinctly different. The temple of the Lord God totally separated, ransomed by the blood, redeemed, bought by God, owned by God, his spiritual dwelling, his temple that he's bringing unto himself. So that's all I want you to get about this blood is that there is a distinct difference. Here's the rethink. There also, though, is a blood that has to do with judgment and cleansing to keep up with the law of Moses. In other words, when God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you die, that hasn't changed. That law still works. If you sin, you die. Death is still here. The Bible still calls enemy a death. It will be the last enemy to be destroyed. We're still seeing the effects of Adam's rebellion as every time we have a funeral, we see the effects of Adam's sin. Death is still here. Death is a real part of the struggle that we all deal with, this enemy that God will defeat once and for all. And so the way it's defeated is, if I believe in the blood of Jesus, that punishment of guilt given to Adam is now removed off of me and I get eternal life. But should I reject Jesus Christ, that punishment of guilt upon Adam, even though Jesus has removed the shame, I don't have to hang out in the woods anymore, if I reject it, I'm going to be punished. Now, the reason I will be punished, again, isn't because he's mad. I'm punished because it's the fulfillment of a, of a promise. God cannot let us get away with it. So as we read, and we're going to read some really tragic things in the, in the chapters to come, but as we read it, we must read with the thought that uh, I can be delivered from this and don't have to go through it. Here's a scripture. Listen to Hebrews 9. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this thought that even in the law of Moses, the only way you could ever get the punishment removed was blood. So for those of us who receive there is forgiveness. For those of us who reject, there is punishment. Listen to Hebrews 10. It gets really interesting in Hebrews 10. Just think. <laughs> and I think this is pretty much, if I was just going on a limb here, I think this is pretty much the summation of the book of Revelation. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who've trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. So even God says, if you reject me, there will come a worse punishment upon you. So as we go through the book of Revelation in the chapters ahead, we are seeing this fulfilled. 
Right now, you're not seeing it. Why? Because we still live in an age where Jesus Christ and the church is still working to bring people into the mercy of God's goodness, to receive His Son, to say to the Son, You are my Lord and Savior. You are the one that delivered me from the shame and the guilt. I receive you now. But for those who continue pushing Him off, there will be a worse punishment. And so even though when we read this stuff, it just seems so bizarre. As a matter of fact, let's see what the worst punishment would be. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. I just want to read through some of them to let you know I really believe God is serious when we talk blood. Revelation chapter 8, verse 6. The seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast, and the first angel blew his trumpet... And hell and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. And one-third of the earth was set fire. One-third of the trees were burned. And all the green grass was burned. And the second angel, verse 8, blew his trumpet. We'll, We'll study these in depth in the weeks ahead. And a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. And one third of the water in the sea became blood. And one-third of all the living creatures in the sea died. The book of Revelation, as we go through it, I'm going to give you some scriptures to write down for the sake of time, but let you study them. Revelation 11, 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 14, 14 through 20. Revelation chapter 16, 1 through 7. Listen to Revelation 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs, and all of those became blood. And then verse 5 of Revelation 6, this sums up what I'm saying. And I heard an angel with authority over all the water, which is an interesting thought. You are just, O Holy One, who is and who was and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you've given them blood to drink. That just sounds so bizarre, does it not? You've given them blood to drink. And then listen to this phrase, Revelation 6, verse 16, verse 6. It's their just reward. That's powerful. God says, if you reject me, you get your just reward. What is your just reward? I'm going to pour out blood. You're going to die. I'll never forget that I'm going to give blood because there's the blood of judgment and then there's the blood that redeems. The blood that redeems guarantees you life. You're separate. You're mine. I own you. You're my property. But reject me and there will be the blood that sets you apart for death. I will rain down fire from heaven and stones of blood. I will pour my bowls out upon the oceans, blood. I will destroy the rivers, blood. It is amazing as we get into it that God never forgets that all sin will be punished by blood. Whether you receive Jesus and that's your punishment and you get it, or you reject Him and the blood comes anyway. So the things that I want you to understand here as we move through it, the reason I'm so passionate that perhaps we're not going to go through the wrath is because of this issue of the blood of Jesus. I don't see logically how I would go through all of the wrath when I've been separated. Let's go back to the book of Revelation, verse 7 and 8. Look. Here he comes in the clouds of heaven. This is an interesting thought. I'm just going to be brief with it. Everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. There's that blood again. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. I'm the one who is, who was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Here is two thoughts. Uh, I underlined them in yellow, and then the other one is in green. I want to talk first about the yellow. I'm not going to go deep, but I'm definitely going to let you study it out on your own and you can bring it back to discuss it. But how could every eye see him? And if you go through the biblical, and I put down the biblical model of the earth, 
The biblical model of the earth is distinctly different from NASA's model of the earth. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I know NASA has given us some great stuff in all of our literature. The, the, one of the questions I asked years ago was how do they even know what the middle of the earth looks like when we've never gone below 11 miles? But my little science book cut it open real nice and showed me a little hot ball in the middle. And I was like, that's really interesting. But the more that I studied and the more I went through school, the more I educated myself and read scripture, it seems that the earth as we know it from scripture is vastly different from the NASA where the sun is the center of the universe. And what I read in the Bible, the sun is not the center of the universe. The earth is the center of the universe. God will come back. There will be no more sun. The sun was created on day four. The earth, there's nowhere like it. There's not another place filled with human beings where God will rule the universe from the earth. It is founded. It is immovable, the Bible will say. I don't believe we're spinning through earth at millions and thousands of miles an hour hurling through the universe, spinning around just by gravity. I believe, I'm not going to go there tonight, but I believe this is the biblical model, which probably blows people's mind, that the earth is founded. God established it upon pillars. The depths of hell, Sheol, are under the ocean. That's why there's going to be no more ocean in the mountains and the seas will go and the firmaments above and the dome that sits over the firmament and all of it's in there. Hey, if you just want to go down a rabbit hole of YouTube, just Google it. You'll go down a rabbit hole forever, but I would love to talk with you about it because to me, I believe what science is, I'm not against science at all, but I believe what we've begun to believe is so unbiblical. There's not, not even a foundation of Scripture. So when the Bible says every eye will see him, and there'll be no more need for sun. I would just encourage you to Google uh, maybe a good image of what this biblical earth look like. You'll get a great model and it may bring some revelation to you. But that was the thought. Uh, and I'll let you study it. I don't know where you fall on that. But the next one is this, that not only will everybody see him, because if it's a dome earth, it's easy to see because everybody's on a plane versus a ball. Everybody will see him. And then this, even those who pierced him. And here's what it says about those who pierce him. They will mourn. So think about it. All of the nations of the earth now begin to mourn. Revelation 19. Turn there in your Bible. I want to tell you why all the nations of the earth are going to mourn. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. It's just profound. But I think it'll show you what I mean that God's dealing with people differently than he deals with the church. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. I saw the heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named. Listen to what the rider named. If, if you got your Bible, they're not going to come on the screen. It would take me forever to give all the scriptures on the screen. So let's just read it in the Bible. Listen to his name in verse 11. His name is faithful and true. Come on, somebody. He's faithful and true. I know it may seem unfair, but he's faithful. I know it may seem like he's really ticked off. He's not. He's true. What he told Adam he would do, he will do. Thousands upon thousands of years later, if you sin, you die. Even if it's 20 million years later, I'm true to my word. I'm faithful to my word. And then it says his eyes in trouble and truth. Now listen, for he judges fairly. Come on, somebody. And he wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Come on, somebody. This is what I'm trying to get to you, that, that his robe that is dipped in blood, it, it even shows us we're distinctly separate because we too wash our robes. We'll get there one day as we get into it. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword and here's why the nations mourn, to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. He's faithful. He's not mean. He's not mad. He's just doing what he told you he would do. That's why we worship him. He's going to do what he told you he's going to do. And I'm going to come back in a fierceness. 
The first time you saw me, I came very gracious. I came as a little baby swaddled up. You all call it Christmas. And you put me in a little manger and you talk about a great little Jewish carpenter that came to redeem the world. That is the blood that redeems. But there's coming the same one who is he who is to come. And he doesn't come back a second time to shed blood. He comes back to make war. He comes back to judge. He comes back to purify the earth from sin. A total different Jesus than the Jesus that came as a little baby in swaddling clothes in his work. So this mentality of, Oh, just love Jesus. He loves you. Yes, it's absolutely true. He loves you. But get in mind that the Jesus on the cross is no longer there. The Jesus on the cross is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the next time he pops the clouds open, he's coming back with a sword to bring vengeance and judgment and repay the earth for the rejection that they gave him. We just don't like to talk about that Jesus. It doesn't make church explode. That Jesus really gets on my nerves. But I do want you to understand that there is a thinking that this thing of blood really does separate us. And uh, I would just leave you with this thought as we get ready to move into the next thing. Is that I, I find it very difficult to think that just with the thinking of blood that we're going to be treated the same as everyone who rejected him. I'll talk a little bit more about it in the weeks ahead, but even that thought of, well, we'll be here, but God will protect us. I'm going to tell you why tonight I don't even think that's true. I don't think we'll be here and he's just protecting us in a little bubble. Like I'm, I'm, I'm wasting away everybody else. The whole earth is turning to blood, mountains and all, but y'all are my little people, and I'm just going to keep you in a little bubble over here and just let you float in the ocean and be safe. Although that could be plausible, he could do that, but I don't think he is, and I'll tell you why. Let's bring it down a little less lighthearted. Verse 9, this is a little less lighthearted. I, John, am your brother and partner in the suffering of God's kingdom and in patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and my testimony about Jesus. Here's a little bit about John, the guy that wrote it. John was a son of Zebedee, a Galilean fisherman. John and his brother James were among the first disciples called by Jesus. He and his brothers were called, I love it, sons of thunder by Jesus. And here's why I believe they were called that. Luke 9, 54. Do you remember he said, hey, let us call down fire from heaven and kill these fellows. I think Jesus saw their passion and said, I think I'll call them sons of thunder. He's the author of the gospel of John. Historical evidence suggests that he died a teacher. Even though he was exiled to the island of Patmos, he died a teacher and a martyr in the city of Ephesus is where he ended up being. Here's some early tradition about him. It says that John was banished to Patmos by the Roman authorities. Just reading you some history here to kind of lighten the mood for a minute. Banishment was a common punishment for such offenses, such as the practices of magic and astrology. Prophecy, which this book is was viewed by the Romans as belonging to the same category, whether pagan, Jewish, or Christian. Prophecy with political implications, and this book had that because uh, of Jesus coming back to rule as king of the earth, that was expressed by John in the book of Revelation would have been perceived as a threat to the Roman political power and order. So because John was perceived a threat to the Roman Empire, they chunked him out on the island of Patmos, Here's the island of Patmos. Remember our seven churches that he wrote to? Well, our brother's just sitting right off the bank. So as he's writing to the seven churches, he's on this little island sitting off looking at these seven churches. And Jesus comes down. This is modern-day Patmos. Doesn't look like he was suffering too much, does it? Uh, so I, I guess he was, right? But it sure does look modern day. Looks like we might could go hang out there a little bit. Here's another picture of a modern Isle of Patmos area. So it's seemingly pretty beautiful. You can see the kind of little mountains and hills off in the background, which is where the churches would have been that he's writing the letter to. But he's been dumped on this island. I'm almost certain it wasn't quite as crowded because it was an island of exile back then. Now it's probably a nice little luxury place to get away over in Asia Minor and go on a nice honeymoon. But I don't believe John was on a honeymoon while he's downloading it. But on that island, just so you know, it is a historical island and it's not just make-believe. 
This is the cave of Revelation. This is the place where they believe that John was hanging out when uh, he got the revelation from the angel. I don't know if that's true or not. This is just historical. But I love what religious people do. We always love to turn things into a shrine and charge money. It's just, uh, this is what we're really good at. We totally reject the book as being anything true. But my Lord, give me 20 bucks. I'll let you come in and light a candle, right? So, uh, but uh, that is a picture of the, uh, the actual cave that they think he was in. His history would tell us. And so if you ever go there, you can go in and take a nice picture. you got a little kneeling benches there, and you can have a great time with God and see if he'll speak to you and give you part two. I don't know. <laughs> Verse 16 and 17 now, we move into something that I think is going to be very important, and I want to try in the next 20 minutes to wrap this up with this thought, again, of why I think the church is so different and seen so differently. And what I'm going to share with you now is going to be a reason why I truly and honestly believe we will not be here. And I want to try to do it tonight in the amount of time I have left, but make it clear where you can study it deeper. So what I've tried to do is the churches are distinctly different. We're distinctly different because we're the body. We're distinctly different because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so now that we've established that, the question would be, will I go through it and be kept safe? which is plausible, I'm not against it. If, if we do go through it, I would hope that happens. Or will Jesus come and get us and bring us to himself? We'll talk about this a little more in the weeks ahead, which we would call the rapture, which people that love to debate would say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. And then we'd also say, well, neither is the word trinity, but we believe that as well. So even though there may not be the word rapture in the Bible, the catching away, of God's people, I do believe that I see it through the Bible and it feels very plausible, so I'll share it with you. So let's just go into the book of Revelation, put your eyeballs on verses 16 and 17, and they're on the screen, and let me read it. He held seven stars in his right hand. So what we're going to be talking about now is this important thing of the right hand. I believe if it wasn't important, we wouldn't even care which hand Jesus used. What does it really matter that he's holding the stars in his right hand, the angels of the seven churches in his right hand? Why do we even care? Just in his hand. But no, John is very clear, very distinct that John grabs the right hand, and I think he's doing it for a reason, I'll tell you. And in his right hand there was a two-edged sword that came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But, again, very interesting. Not just he laid hands on me, but he laid his right hand on me. And this is what he said. And this is critical. Do not be afraid. I, and he gives the title to himself, which takes me back to that issue of time. I am the first and the last. In other words, don't be afraid, John, because I'm going to bring you to myself and we're going to end this thing that you know we're, we're working on now, which is what's been my point. All right, so here's the thought. Jesus is holding the angels of the churches, remember? And I saw in his right hand, and he had seven stars, which are the angels of the churches in his right hand. He's standing in the middle of the churches. But he also says this. He, John was touched with his right hand. So what I want to do is take about 15 minutes of our time here, and I want to talk about the importance of what this means in John's thinking and maybe how it, what it would mean to you and I. And I need you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35 is going to be the place where this issue of a right hand becomes uh, well known and introduced into humanity. Uh, probably up until this time, it may have not seemingly been that significant of a practice, although it could have been. But as we go through it, I'm going to teach you what the right hand means and kind of where it came from. So let's read, if we will, Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 18. This brings us into the story of Jacob, who will later have his name changed to Israel, which is the nation that God will be dealing with in the book of Revelation. 
Leaving Bethel, verse 16, Jacob and his clan moved toward Ephrath. But Rachel went into labor while they were still some distance away, and her labor pains were intense. And after a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid. You have another son. Rachel was about to die. Listen to this now. But with her last breath, she named the baby Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. The baby's father, who is Jacob, later to change his name to Israel, called him Benjamin, which means, this is the first time that we find this phrase, it means he's the son of my right hand. So verse 18, we see two different perspectives for the same kid. We see the mother who's dying call him a son of my sorrow, and we see the father who will now become the head of the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel within which King David will arise and the covenants with the nation will arise, calling this son Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Now, Rachel had two sons, Joseph. Many of us know Joseph, the coat of many colors. And Benjamin was her last kid. So Rachel had Joseph, the first son, and Benjamin was the second son of Rachel. They're brothers. Same mother, same dad. Joseph is the firstborn. Benjamin is the lastborn. They sit as bookends. This is going to be critical to understand when John starts calling Jesus, I see in his right hand, he blessed me with his right hand. My belief is John is tracking himself all the way back to the writings of Moses to understand that this son of the right hand, anytime we mention the right hand to the Jewish mind, is going to take me back to the birth of Benjamin. So to understand the power of what the right hand means, I just need to understand what is going to go on in the life of Benjamin. What has this little kid got to do with anything? Well, because it would take us probably an hour to read the next seven chapters of Genesis, the story goes like this. Joseph starts having some dreams. His brothers get ticked. His brothers throw him in a ditch. They take an animal. They put blood all over his coat of many colors. They take it back to their dad. They say, oops, your firstborn son, Joseph, to your wife, Rachel, is dead, died by a wild animal. Daddy Jacob, who's now Israel, is so upset. Oh, my son is dead. I can't believe. The brothers are like, yeah, we tricked dad. We hated that dreamer anyway. They sold him into slavery. He goes into slavery. He's in Egypt. While he's in Egypt, uh, if you know the story, Potiphar's wife is like, nope, he raped me. He's like, dude, didn't rape you. Sorry you did. Throw him in jail. Gets thrown into jail. While he's in jail, he meets two fellas. He shares some dreams with him. They do him wrong. Over a period of time, Joseph gets out and uh, basically is remembered in jail. End of story, he becomes the right-hand guy to Pharaoh. If you remember the story of Joseph. Now he's the right-hand dude to Pharaoh and a famine comes in the land. The famine comes in the land, but out of his wisdom, Joseph had been storing up food so that he could feed people. Well, once his daddy and brother's here, there's food in Egypt. Let's go. And so all of the brothers, several of them, trek out, but they left. Here's a key. You can read it tonight. They left Benjamin at home. Daddy would not let Benjamin go. Y'all can go get food. Baby boy stays with me. And if you, uh, I wrote down the scripture verse, uh, uh, Genesis 42, 34, if you want to just read it. I'll just read it to you. Genesis uh, 42 verse 34 so turn there and you can underline it so you can kind of just as you read tonight see it he will say this about him he said you must bring your younger brother back to me because Joseph when he gets there starts asking him a question and says do you have any more family and they say yes our dad and our younger brother's home the older brother died dad wouldn't let the younger brother come with us. He says, well, go back and get your younger brother and bring him here. Otherwise, I'm going to think you guys are spies. So they freak out like, oh, my gosh. We got to go tell dad that, that Joseph is going to kill. They didn't know it was Joseph. This guy's going to kill us if we don't bring baby boy back. So they get baby boy Benjamin, and they let him go. Benjamin comes back and comes to the palace where Joseph is. Joseph's still incognito looking at all of his brothers. And now we've got Joseph in Egypt and little Benjamin 
who is the last kid born, who was the son of his father's right hand, who his daddy said, if he dies, it's the end of my life here. I cannot let this kid go. Genesis 44, 30. Listen to this. I want to read it to you. Genesis 44, verse 30. And this is just profound. He said, now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. And man, this is so touching. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. Because what Joseph told him is, uh, because you just have to read the story. Because you've tricked me and you thought I didn't know. And no, I'm going to keep this boy. Now you've got to go back and tell your daddy that your little boy's here And Joseph the whole time is reeling them in because he knows they're his brothers. But he connects the kid all through the story, if you will read it. He connects Benjamin, the son of the right hand, to the love of his father. That he and the father are one in heart, Jacob and Israel, to Benjamin. And yet here sits Joseph over Egypt. And as you read it, he says there's coming seven years of famine. That's interesting because we're going to deal with seven years of tribulation. There's coming seven years of famine. But here's what's going to happen to little Joseph and Benjamin. Is to ask a question. Are we children of sorrow or children of the right hand? Because this determines how people will interpret the book of Revelation. Children of sorrow are going to go through it. You're going to pay the price. But the children of the right hand don't. Because what you will read in the book of Genesis... Uh, I'm going to go back and give you the, the text. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 11. What you will backing out in that text of Scripture is Joseph says, No, go back and get your daddy. Go back and get everybody. I'm not coming to you all. I'm going to bring you all to me. And, and so what Joseph did is there's going to be seven years of famine but I'm not coming off the throne of Egypt to go back to daddy's house to get all my brothers and everybody that sold me out and did me wrong. I'm such a gracious brother and I'm so forgiving and God did this for you. You thought you were doing it against me, but God was doing it for you. I want you to go home and tell everybody, pack up the saddles, boys. Y'all are coming to Egypt and you're going to live with me. So my thinking is, that the reality of the way we think is that we think children of sorrow. He's going to leave me down here, maybe provide for me, maybe throw me some food in the middle of famine, and I just want you to know the moment he's connected to the right hand, it lends the belief that we're not going to be down here with God throwing us some chicken feed going, while y'all are in famine, I'll take care of you. I'm up here on the throne, but you all stay there while I throw you some food and throw you some bread and huddle over you. No, what I'm going to do because you're children of my right hand is I'm going to say, pack up the donkeys, boys. You're coming to be with me and you will sit with me on my throne by me. This is why the mothers of John will say, I just want to know, can my boys sit at your right hand? Because this right hand was a thing of honor. This right hand was a belonging. This right hand was a position. This right hand was a bringing unto myself. So as you, as you read it, you can either read it as, I'm a child of sorrow, we're all going to go through it, maybe we'll get a little loaf of bread from God and He'll protect us and keep us from all the famine and all the plagues and put us in a little rock somewhere and protect us from all the sun that's burning up and the boils and the 50-pound hailstones that are falling out of the sky. Or He may just say, hey, because I've redeemed you, Because y'all killed me and you thought you were doing your own selves a disservice, but your own death of me was a plan from the beginning of time. And now I'm up here seated on a throne and I'm going to bring you to myself because you're children of my right hand. I'm going to give you a place of honor like I have a place of honor. So I would just encourage you that even though we don't see rapture in the Bible, we do know that from John's revelation of the right hand being laid upon his head and the angels of the churches in his right, which is weird. The angels of the churches are in his right hand. What would that tell you about us as the church? We are going to be brought unto him. 
and not even have to suffer the wrath of God. Well, that was, a, that was probably about a 10-week sermon in about 18 minutes. But I gave you Genesis 35 through 44. Read it. And just know that when John says, I saw in the right hand seven stars and he laid his right hand upon me, that in that Jewish mentality, we can link it up to Benjamin, who was the bookend of Joseph. Joseph, who is seated on the throne. Benjamin, who's in a famine. And he says, man, go home and get it. All you and your family are coming to me. You're going to come with me in Egypt, and I'm going to provide you, watch, for all seven years. That is profound. Because God is letting me know, man, I got you, Mark. I'm going to bring you to myself. You call it rapture. Call, I don't even care what you call it. I don't see rapture in the Bible. I don't care. He's going to come get me somehow. That's just kind of the way I see it. I won't belabor the point, but that sure doesn't look like a Jesus that's going to make me go through something. Because all of that picture is the church. It's not the nations. It's not the Jews. It's not the Gentiles. That entire picture is the church. The lampstands are the churches. The stars in his hand are the angels of the churches. The sword in his mouth is the judgment of his word. And so I just would say, does that look like he's going to say, yeah, never mind, I'm going to let you go through it. I just don't see it. And as we go further, I'll let you know. Here's a good fill in the blank. Jesus, through the right hand, is intimating that he holds the angels of the churches in his right hand. Thus signifying that the churches he walks among will be brought to himself. Because they are all children of the Father, as Jesus is the firstborn who was dead but is now alive. And I love this. He's gone to prepare a place for me. Just like Joseph was preparing a place and I, I'm not so certain that that place means just my mansion, quote, with 19 bedrooms. I think the place means in his presence. I'm in his presence. The place that he's prepared for me is to be with him in his presence. So wherever he is, I want to be there with him. So I'll, I'll let you, I know that's a lot to fill in. All the words there are basically fill in the blanks. But his right hand signifies we've been brought to himself. Let's continue reading and we'll conclude. It says this out of that scripture we just read. Out of Jesus' mouth, which is weird, comes a sharp two-edged sword. This has been debatable of what that is. This is my belief on it. Jesus will come to reveal the hidden things of the heart bringing all humanity into accountability with God with the only remedy being these two things, repentance or death. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 that his word is like a sharp two-edged sword and it goes to pierce, dividing of sunder, the heart, the spirit, the soul, the joints and the marrow to bring everybody into accountability with God. Revelation chapter 2, next week when we get into the churches, Jesus will say, I'm the one who holds the, uh, who, who has a sword as a sign of repentance. So anytime you see the double-edged sword, this is the best way I could define it that may make it practical. It cuts both ways. When the Word of God hits you and comes into your life, it cuts you. And it divides your spirit, soul, joints, and marrow. And as long as it doesn't come back out, you live. But when you disobey, it comes back out and you fall asunder and you die. So the double-edged sword carries two purposes. First, to cut you coming in for obedience, for life or to cut you coming out for disobedience. We will see as Jesus stands upon the Mount of Olives and he begins to bring judgment on the Antichrist kingdom. Uh, they literally are burst asunder and their blood flows for over 200 miles. They're under judgment. So that, 
double-edged sword. You need to think differently than just the Bible being the sword. You need to think that it is a work of the Word of God for obedience or disobedience. And here's what the Word does. It cuts for both. So this is not my message, but it'll help you maybe study it out. When God said, I raised Pharaoh up for such a time as this, man, he's mine. I used him for my own and, uh, you know, I already knew he was going to rebel and I forced him to do it, uh, you know. But what you need to understand about that is the way God hardened his heart, right? Because we read that, well, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He had no choice. But the way God hardened his heart was just gave him the word. And then when Pharaoh rejected the word, his heart became hard. God stepped back in and said, well, I hardened his heart. Well, if you hardened his heart, that seems unfair because you're asking him to do something, but you're hardening his heart. He got, Mark, you don't understand because I had this discussion years ago with God. That's so unfair to harden the guy's heart and then he can't obey because you've hardened his heart. He said, Mark, I didn't tell him he couldn't obey. I gave him my word and he wouldn't obey me. Let my people go. No, my word came back out. His heart got hard because anytime you get cut and it comes back out, what does that do? It scars over. It becomes calloused. And then God sent the word again. Let my people go. No word comes back out. His heart gets hardened. Because what the Word of God does will either soften the heart or harden the heart. So how does God soften or harden us? I just send the Word. I'm fair to everybody. If you receive my Word, then I soften your heart. If you reject my Word, your heart gets hard. But that's what my Word is doing. So this whole thing of God's unfair, God is totally fair. He's faithful and He's true. He just gives the Word and then He lets the Word either cut you for obedience or disobedience. So he comes to judge, Hebrews 4.11. So let's look at this final thing. We finally made it. Everybody just clap. We made it to the end of the book. <laughs> I hope I didn't run through the right hand too much, but it gives you something to study. So let's see what's to come. This is going to be fun next week. I can't wait for the next two weeks to talk about the churches. Here's what he says in verse 19. Write down, this is pretty critical now, what you have seen. That's chapter 1. But the thing, both the things that are now happening, that's to the churches, and the things that will happen, here's how the book of Revelation is laid out. Write the things you've seen. That's chapter 1. You've seen the Alpha who was the Redeemer. And I've spent th three weeks talking about this Jesus the Redeemer. And out of this Jesus the Redeemer, we get a nation of Israel that will be judged, Gentile nations that will be judged, and we get Christians that have been judged on the cross, those three nations out of that Alpha. But we also, in the next two weeks, because we're going to take chapter 2 next week, chapter 3 the next, we're going to look at the things that are happening now. These churches are going to have three, I'll get into it deeper next week, but all the churches are going to speak to what was, what is, and what is to come as well. That's chapters 2 and 3. And chapters 2 and 3, what is now happening, watch, is still happening now. So chapter 2 and 3 is still going on right now. And we'll show why these seven churches represent the entire scope. This is why God picked these seven, is because they're going to represent the entire scope of all of us who've ever been part of the church. And Jesus is still right now in the mode of I am the one who is. I haven't come yet. I will come. I am who is to come. But right now I am who is. Who is that? It's the living one. And it's the one that sits on the throne to mediate for us as our high priest. Come on, somebody. He's alive and well, ever living to make intercession for me. So you're, right now you are in the middle. You know about the historical Jesus. But right now we're living here in chapters 2 and 3 going on. And then 4 on through 22 are the prophetic realm of the book. The things that will happen, what will come in the future. That is the Omega, the one who is to come, and he's seen as ruler. The past Jesus who was is the Redeemer. The one who is right now is the Mediator. And the one who has come is the Judge and the Ruler. 
And so even John's testament of him, who was, who is, and who is to come, not only is a title of Jesus, but it's also the direction the book will take, and it's also the direction that all seven churches will take, and it's also the direction your life will take, and we'll bring all that out next week. So that's where we're headed next week, and now you can go get buttered popcorn and have a great time. Thank you so much for being part of chapter one. I love you. I bless you. I'll see you next week for chapter two. Have a great night. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.